The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. morning and welcome to our ongoing study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. We've got a great lesson this morning and I am glad you can join us uh, because we are winding up our study of Paul. Last week we finished his writing in 1 Timothy, uh, which you'll recall was his letter to his uh, apprentice, his protege, uh, Timothy, who was teaching and preaching at the church at Ephesus. And now we find him uh, headed back to Rome. We're going to use that context to look at a question that we as Christians get all the time, which is why do bad things happen to good people? We're gonna look at what happened to Paul in order to tackle that question, and I'm so glad you're here as we look at that issue. What I wanna do is put this into context just a little bit, because you remember as we studied the book of Titus and as we studied 1 Timothy, he was spending the winter in the Greek city of Nicopolis. Well, to get back to Rome, he would head north uh, on the western coast of Greece, and then right in the spot where it's closest to the heel of the boot of uh, Italy, he would sail across that waterway, which is the connection between the Ionian Sea and the Adriatic Sea, uh, and after a couple of hours of sailing, would be back on land and then could make his way north to Rome. We don't know why Paul went back to Rome. We don't have any indication in Scripture as to whether it was of his own volition, whether God had told him to go back. We don't know if he missed Peter, uh, who by then had moved to Rome and was uh, teaching the church there, uh, but he went. Uh, and while there, you'll discover as we go through our lesson, he was arrested again and he was imprisoned again. And this will be the last imprisonment of his life. So Paul is returning to Rome. And I want to put into context what happened when he got there, just to kind of put our chronology together. Uh, he spent the winter of 63 and 64 in Nicopolis. Uh, sometime in the spring, would have headed back to Rome, most likely in April, based upon the travel uh, back then, once the spring enabled people to travel by roads and see safely. Uh, and when there, he encountered probably a couple of weeks or months of calmness. We're not even sure what he was doing, uh, where he was ministering, who he was hanging out with, but we know he was there in Rome in the summer of 68 when something happened to change everything for a lot of people. Um, I've got to introduce one guy because every story isn't complete without a good villain, and we've got a good, or you could say bad villain, uh, to add to the story, and that is the emperor of Rome at the time, who is Nero. Nero was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, both his biological father and his mother were descendants of Caesar, uh, and uh, as a result, when his father was uh, killed, uh, his mother married the emperor of Rome, Claudius, and somehow she persuaded him to uh, have Nero uh, as his adopted son and put him in line uh, essentially to the throne. Uh, and then when uh, his wife uh, killed his stepfather, he then became and was pushed by his mother to become the emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, he was the adopted son of Claudius. He took the throne at the age of 16. 
Uh, and in history, he's known for his debauchery and cruelty. He was a bad guy. I think from my study of him, uh, he was a psychopath. He was as crazy as crazy can get, but he didn't start that way. Initially, he was loved by the people. Uh, they thought uh, a fair amount of his father. He was regarded highly when he was in his late teens, uh, but he was a narcissist. He was a megalomaniac. Everything was about him, uh, and the things he did were pretty bad. Uh, he murdered his mother, the same woman that had killed his stepfather to promote him to the throne when he was 21. Uh, he had someone kill his first wife. Uh, he beat his second wife while she was pregnant and killed her with his own hand, including his unborn child. Uh, he was notorious for the things he did uh, to criminals and political opponents and military opponents. And I could go on and on and just completely disgust you with how bad he was. You get a hint of that in the lesson once you see what happens to him and how it involves uh, Paul and Peter. Uh, but the point is that after a number of years, just four short years, uh, his guard, his secret service, so to speak, called the Praetorian Guard, rebelled against him and no longer agreed to protect him. The Roman Senate ultimately declared him to be an enemy of the state because he was so self-centered and so narcissistic. Uh, and they basically said, if anybody kills him, uh, you have our blessing. And so as soldiers were coming to arrest him and bring him back to Rome for execution, he committed suicide in the summer of 68 while on the run uh, and has uh, uh, the, the remainder of his legacy has been one of uh, extreme negativity uh, and he's regarded as one of the worst uh, leaders in human history and certainly one of the best emperors in Roman history. So that's our bad guy. Now here's what happened. In July of 64, July 19th, we know exactly, a fire started in Rome. It started in a poor part of town next to the circus, next to the racetrack where they ran chariot races. Uh, and we're not exactly sure how it happened, but we know that it burned for nine days. Uh, more than half of Rome was completely destroyed that summer. 10 of Rome's 14 districts uh, were either totally burned to the ground or had so much damage they had to be completely rebuilt. And 1 million, more than half of the citizens of Rome, had no place to live. Uh, this is a picture of just the extent of the devastation. Uh, it's If you're not familiar with Rome, that probably doesn't mean very much, but uh, you can see where I've got the yellow arrow uh, pointing to the place where they know the fire started. And you can see right above it kind of an oblong circular thing, which is the racetrack, the circus where they would do their chariot races. Uh, and up against that, uh, as you looked up to the uh, Palatine Hill, uh, there were uh, slums. There were, uh, we'd call them tenements almost, where there were uh, apartments built on apartments built on apartments uh, with large densities of very poor people, uh, and that's where the fire broke out. Uh, this is an artist's drawing of what it would look like. You could kind of see where there's a bunch of buildings drawn uh, or, or uh, put in the little artist's uh, art thing. You can see where the racetrack would have been of the circus. And then looking up the hill, you can see uh, where the Palatine Hill would have been, which is where the, uh, the houses and the palaces of the Caesars were located. Uh, now, one of the reasons why Nero was believed to have started this fire is because when it burned through the city and more than half the city was destroyed, 
Nero, surprise, surprise, built a huge palace there. So he built a palace that took up 40 acres of uh, inner city land and built a monumental palace that was just incredible uh, with its own enormous lake where he would sail huge ships basically in his backyard. Uh, and the people of the citizenry looked around and said, oh, what a coincidence, we have a fire and Nero builds this huge uh, palace or at least starts building. So they were pretty disgusted and the thought was that Nero uh, had uh, been the cause of the fire. Uh, it's interesting here in this picture that uh, while the circus itself no longer exists, uh, the, the, the ground upon which they ran the chariots is still clear. And you can stand there today and look and see where the racetrack was. You just don't have the stands around it. Uh, so when Natalie and I were there, this is the picture of where the fire started. Uh, and right behind us is the ground where the circus racetrack was located. And then right behind uh, us in that picture is the Palatine Hill, which is the uh, uh, former citadel of the emperors uh, that several hundred years after this fire that we're talking about, uh, the barbarians came in and destroyed much of Rome. And what's left is what was left behind by the barbarians after they came in. Uh, it is impossible for us to tell with certainty what caused this fire. We, we just don't have any idea because it's almost like doing a forensic crime investigation 2,000 plus years after it happened. Uh, they just didn't take care of enough of that kind of investigative work. Uh, Caesar wouldn't allow it to happen uh, and there wasn't much they could do. And we can just kind of look in history and make some guesses, but whether a lamp fell over whether Caesar had someone started, whether someone that hated Caesar had it started, we don't have any idea. But as I said earlier, the people blamed Nero. Nero, interestingly, uh, did everything in his power to deny it, uh, labeled it kind of his equivalent of fake news. He had all kinds of pronouncements. He had all kinds of uh, uh, statements made about it by himself and by others and basically said, no, don't believe the lies about me. But he just couldn't shake it. People believed uh, that he was vicious enough and cruel enough and wanted land enough. That's exactly what he would have done. Nero, in contrast, blamed the Christians. And this is fascinating because it's the first time in Roman history anybody associated with Rome was on a wide-scale basis saying bad things about the Christians. But he blamed them, and starting in the late summer and fall of 64 AD, he ordered the arrest of all leaders of the Christian church. So certainly all of the, the teachers, elders, uh, deacons, uh, prominent citizens who would have been there. He ordered them all to be arrested. It's during this time period that the Apostle Paul, that we're studying our class, and the Apostle Peter, who was teaching at the Church of Rome at the time, were arrested. Now, with this background, you can kind of see how Paul ends up back in prison, and so that kind of serves as the basis for the cool things we're going to talk about today. Um, I've given you a quote here from the greatest Roman historian that wrote about this fire. His name is Tacitus, and Tacitus uh, was seven years old when the fire started. Uh, he said later in life he remembered the devastation. He remembered the loss of his home and all of his possessions and his parents' possessions. He remembered the hunger 
of not having food to eat and the pain that that causes. He said he re later in life that he remembered uh, the smell of smoke that existed for years afterwards. And he remembers uh, camping out in a park or living in a park uh, in almost like a tent type city uh, because so many people had lost their homes and their places of employment. And so when he was uh, in his mid-30s, he wrote a history that still exists today. I've quoted it verbatim for the part that is of significance to us, but it's the most detailed history we have of what happened in the fire in Rome in 64 AD. He says, but neither human help nor imperial munificence, in other words, the, the generosity or the statements of Nero, nor all the modes of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by Nero's order. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the most refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Tacitus is not a Christian. As you're going to see by the next passage, he's writing from an outsider's perspective, but it's fascinating what he says about that situation when Nero's blaming these people called Christians. Now to his Roman readers who may not have known then what a Christian was, he explained that next. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment. In other words, the superstition that he was the Christ. Only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, that's a reference to Rome, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. So you can read between the lines that he doesn't think much of Christianity, but he feels sorry for them being wrongfully accused because Nero, who everyone thought was the cause of the fire that left a million people homeless, wanted to deflect attention away from what he was believing was fake news and started uh, blaming the Christians for it. Tacitus, our historian, continues, First, then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race, and derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, where they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night you get a little bit of insight there into how psychotic and evil Nero was. When hundreds, could have been thousands, we don't know how many were taken prisoner at the time, uh, were arrested, basically they beat false confessions out of them, is what Tacitus is telling us, uh, and then those that were convicted were sentenced to death. This is exactly what's going to happen to Paul. Uh, Paul is going to be executed as a part of this sweep of Christians as a result of the fire of 64 in Rome. But because he was a Roman citizen, he was allowed to have a trial. Now, we don't know where he was taken. I've got an educated guess, but it's just based on a lot of research and a lot of years of studying this. But ultimately, we know he ended up in the Mamertine prison. 
I am ultimately going to show you a lot of pictures about this. Before I get there, let's put one more comment here and there about his gardens. It says, Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle. Hence, in spite of the guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but for the ferocity of a single man. So the perspective here of those in prison, whether it was the Mamertine prison or some other prison, there's a reference that the people saw what was going on and did not like it, that they actually felt sorry for the Christians that were being thrown into the Mamertine prison or thrown into some other prison awaiting trial, uh, and then felt pity for those that were murdered uh, because of their uh, uh, alleged guilt by Nero, who they all thought was a pathological liar. I mentioned earlier the Mamertine prison. We know as a matter of historical fact, this is where Paul spends his final days uh, basically on death row. He would have been arrested. He was a Roman citizen. We've seen that before and studied what that meant. That means he's entitled to a full trial and has the right to appeal it all the way to Caesar. In this particular setting, it probably meant that he was held in a jail prior to trial underwent a trial and possibly an appeal and then at the end of that once his death sentence was confirmed he was then transferred to the mamertine prison next week we're going to be studying the book of second timothy the last book that paul writes the last thing we're going to study uh, in terms of paul's writings about his life and his teaching uh, and I do not believe, based on my investigation and personal visits to this prison, that he could have written that book in this prison. I'll explain why. Uh, this is what the front of it looks like today. It's right next to the old Senate, the picture I showed you a minute ago. Uh, that column behind it is the column that used to be the Senate. You can go there today. There's still a building you can look at. The Mamertine Prison's right next to it. It's fascinating because unless you're on a specific Christian history tour, the tour guides of Rome do not take you there. Uh, the time I went, Natalie had a bad migraine headache, so she stayed back at the hotel, and I went and kind of found it on my own, and there wasn't a soul there. It was amazing. I was there for about an hour and a half, pushing two hours, and did not see a single person because this thing, even in the middle of the summer, is not on the major tour guides. This is a picture of what it would have looked like then, which is basically a uh, stone structure over a pit, over a dungeon, and there's still a structure on top of it, as you can see from the picture I showed you, but there's no light, there's no windows. There is a hole that you can see there in the middle of my drawing that still exists today that the prisoners would have gone down <clears throat> either a rope ladder or a wooden ladder and pushed down into this hole and their food would have been thrown down to them, but otherwise they're just left to rot in this hole until they're brought back up the ladder and executed in whatever form of execution they had to go through uh, for whatever sentence they were under. Today, if you're up on top in the first floor level looking down, this is the hole that Paul would have been put down once his arrest uh, and conviction was final. You can see the two holes on the side of it that would have held uh, the hooks that held the rope ladder that most people believe went down there. You could have put a wood ladder down, but most people think it was a rope ladder. And then from down inside the building, today there's lights, but when Paul was there and when Peter was there, there would be no light. So that would be your only light source. I took that picture so that you could see that it's highly unlikely with that degree of darkness that Paul 
by his own hand uh, could have written anything. And because this dungeon, this death penalty place, was not a place where you could have visitors come and go, it would be highly unlikely that Paul could dictate the letter of Second Timothy to anyone else. So I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, Paul spent his final days in this prison, chained to that post that you can still see there today. Uh, the table that's there was obviously added, but everything else is exactly the way it would have been when Paul was there. Uh, and when I was there, it was so moving and so powerful I just sat down after I read the little sign that explains what this is, uh, basically the holding place after you had the death penalty if you were a political prisoner or a military prisoner in Rome uh, in the first and second century. And I just sat down on the ground and just contemplated the significance of what that would have been like for Paul. Now, when we come back at the end of 2 Timothy, I'm going to do a deeper lesson on this prison and the things that we can learn from Paul prior to his execution. But at this point, I simply wanted to touch on this as the transition so that you can see that he was probably most likely somewhere else. Now, where do I think he was? We don't know. He could have been in any of the prisons in Rome. There were several of them. But based on my research, I have a feeling that there is a more likely chance than not that he was taken by the Praetorian Guard, the guards of Caesar, to their jail. Why would they do that? Well, number one, you remember from some of our prior studies and studying the prison epistles that not once but twice Paul comments on the guard and sharing his faith to the guard. And even in one passage talks about how uh, it led to the conversion of many people in the Praetorian Guard. So we know that there were Christians in the group of soldier whose job was to guard Caesar and to serve as basically the secret service and almost a personal military for Caesar. And they would have had their own jail since they were military officers and responsible for dealing with uh, personal enemies or political enemies of the king or of the emperor. Uh, and so there would have been a holding cell and there would have been people that would have been uh, favorable to Paul. So if they're looking to protect him until his trial, to make sure that no one else assaulted him, to make sure that he got his meals, to make sure that he had a place to lay down, it makes perfect sense for the Praetorian Guard to take him into their jail to protect him from others that might want to hurt him, that might want to take advantage of him, because in their day, uh, the prisons, the jails, did not provide anything for the prisoners. If you wanted food, friends or family had to provide it. If you wanted a blanket, friends or family had to provide it. If your clothes were dirty and you needed new clothes, friends or family had to provide it. So knowing Paul was going into jail, other people in the church not having the ability to take care of him in Rome, it would make all the sense in the world that the Praetorian Guard will say, we'll take care of this guy. We're going to make sure he's well cared for until his trial, until he gets the what we would call the due process that he deserves. And so my best guess, and I can't state this as a matter of biblical or historical fact, just a highly likely circumstance based on everything I've read and studied at this time in these groups of people, are that the Praetorian Guard took him kept him in a prison, would allow people to come and go, would allow people to bring him food, would give him some of their food, could give him a pillow and blanket. Uh, and it makes all the sense in the world that that was the environment in which he could write Second Timothy. So what is on the screen is ultimately, I know where he went as a matter of historical fact, after his death penalty conviction. We know he spent his final days there. 
but his writing of Second Timothy is so implausible in that place. It had to be another prison. We know he was in, in jail. Uh, and so my best guess is it was the Praetorian Guard. Now, with that background, we circle back to where we are, which is why do bad things happen to good people? I use this title because that's the question that I'm asked. That's the question that you're going to be asked uh, when you confront someone that's looking at a circumstance or looking at something bad in society uh, and talking about either a sickness or a death or a unique tragedy and saying, wait a minute, I thought that was one of the good guys. If there's a loving God, why would a loving God allow something bad like that to happen to a good person? Now, I'm teaching this through the context of Paul because that's the epitome of where he is. He has led the most righteous life you can imagine. He's been obedient to everything God wanted him to do. It doesn't mean he's perfect, uh, but if he sinned, he would quickly pray for forgiveness and repent and provide amends and, and, and try to get back to him what God wanted him to do. So if you look at Paul, he is our poster child, so to speak, for the question of a great guy, a godly guy, and why can't he get a break? Why can't he come back and take over teaching and preaching at the Church of Rome? Why can't he tandem up with Peter and do great things for the kingdom of God? Is God a masochist to allow this to happen? Is God uncaring to have this happen to Paul? And because you can ask the same question about anyone else that tragedy happens to or yourself, I want to use this week's lesson to tackle this question. But before we jump into it, I want to uh, tackle some introductory points. The first one is beware of the question. And the reason I say this is because the images I have up on the screen are the source of this question. The question of why do good things happen to bad people, uh, by bad things happen to good people or vice versa, as I said, uh, is really a form of Western Hinduism. It's the idea of karma, the idea of a cosmic balancing that if you're good, good things are going to happen to you. If you're bad, you're going to get your just desserts and bad things are going to happen. And so Western Hinduism, this kind of culture of karma, would look at a situation like Paul and say, wait a minute, I don't understand. He's one of the good guys. Why is bad things happening? What's his karma that's causing bad things to happen? Karma is not biblical. There's no basis for that. If anything, scripture is the antithesis of karma and that idea of, of what I call Western Hinduism. And so I want to just have you be careful about the idea. Don't fall into this, this false idea of karma because of someone framing the question. I think there's a different way to answer the question and frame the question. I just wanted to start with a warning of be careful because the question itself puts you into a mindset of, of Western Hinduism and this idea of karma, and I don't want people to fall into that trap. Number two, the question of what is your biblical worldview? And I raise this not because it's a new issue in the 21st century. What I've got up on the screen is a dichotomy of the ways that Christians have looked at the cross going back hundreds and thousands of years. This concept of the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory was first written down by none other than that great reformer Martin Luther more than 500 years ago. Luther, in describing what it, for him was an ancient thought, was the idea of ultimately for us in my life, why did Christ die? A theology of the cross, according to Luther, and still true today, looks at the cross 
as the essential basis of our salvation that we step into and carry our cross for him. Uh, and while his ultimate sacrifice on the cross assures our salvation as a human being in a fallen world, a theology of the cross says, I've got to pick up that cross and carry it and even be willing to die on it, just like my Messiah did. It's not about my success. It's not about my health. It's not about my performance. It's not about my money. It's not about my happiness. It's about the cross and the things that I can do for other people, just like Christ did for me. In contrast to that, as old as the ages right after Paul, all the way through Luther, all the way through our day, is a theology of glory. And that concept says the purpose of the cross was to put me in a better fellowship with God so that he could take care of me as his favorite child. And the theology of glory says the purpose of Christ dying on the cross is not so that I can follow him in some kind of similar sacrifice for the obedience to God, but so that he can do things for me for my glory as his child. Now, Luther attacked that as bad theology. This theology of glory is not being consistent with scripture. And we see it today manifested in a variety of ways. Today, it results in a me-centered gospel. And if we're not careful, even in evangelical churches, we can have a me-centered gospel. We see a me-centered gospel, for example, in prayer that is exclusively about us. Gimme, 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 do this, do this, do this, help me, help me, help me. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but if that becomes the entirety of our gospel, then it becomes a false gospel. So we've got to be very careful uh, about anything as a part of our gospel in terms of what we're looking for, what we're proclaiming, how we describe our salvation, how we pray. Those things have got to stay Christ-centered. They've got to focus on the will of God, and they cannot be me-centered or us-centered, or it very quickly gets our theology in trouble. We see that most frequently in what most people call the prosperity gospel, the number of people uh, preaching in our community, in our state, in our world about a variety of different things that are all centered around our health, our happiness, and the things that we do through God to make us better, make us more healthier, make us happier. And we're not going to do the entire lesson on this. I simply wanted to uh, pull some thoughts up to the 21st century from Martin Luther writing 500 years ago uh, to reemphasize that this is and remains one of the most significant uh, movements within Christianity today. Uh, the number of megachurches preaching a prosperity-centered gospel is larger today in 2020 than it has ever been. And it's an easy theology. It's a theology that does not focus on the cross. It does not focus on sin. It doesn't have an answer for suffering. It says, by my thoughts and my words, I can have God pour out a second blessing on me and receive spiritual benefits from that, receive monetary benefits from that, receive health benefits from that, receive all kinds of things from my health, wealth, and happiness. And the problem is, if you look at the Apostle Paul, that whole theology and everything he wrote brings it crashing down. Because if there was ever one by his words and actions that under that false theology would be healthy, wealthy, and happy, it'd be the Apostle Paul. But instead, I've taken his life and teaching you over the past couple of months to teach it to you slowly so you'd see 
that his obedience resulted in massive opposition, resulted in him being beaten and thrown in jail and held in jail for years and scarred and just put through all kinds of torture and verbal abuse and physical abuse. And Paul is our poster child for what's wrong with the prosperity gospel that it's non-biblical, it doesn't work in culture, it doesn't work in society, it doesn't work in theology and church, because it's just inconsistent with everything we see in life. You can't look at the Apostle Paul and say, in light of his faithfulness, in light of his heart, in light of his service, in light of his words, uh, that if the prosperity gospel were true, Paul would be living in the second biggest house in Rome behind the emperor in the nicest of neighborhoods, leading the first Christian church of Rome. And that's the exact opposite of what happened to him. The promises, the prosperity gospel are alive. Now, C.S. Lewis gives us a great little perspective on this because you still have to say, well, Chris, I, I understand I'm not going to follow the prosperity gospel, but I still have to tackle this issue of, of, Bad things happening to good people. I got to issue the tackle this issue of suffering that I go through and that I'm going to go through and that my loved ones or my friends go through. C.S. Lewis has a great perspective. He says, God loves us, so he makes us the gift of suffering. Doesn't seem to make sense, but he keeps saying, he says, through suffering, we release our hold on the toys of this world. We are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves and the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. The suffering in this world is not the failure of God's love for us. It is that love in action. What Lewis is trying to say here is that when we get crushed, when we get squeezed, when we get beaten up, and we want to cry uncle, Christ, stop. It's a release of our ability to think we can handle it on our own, and we turn to the relationship that God wants us to have, which is totally dependent upon him. As someone once said, we reach points in life where we cry uncle in order to cry out, Abba, Father. That's a great little perspective, because when we get to that point of total non-self-reliance, we're in the position where Paul described earlier some things we saw as when I am weak, he is strong. When I am weak, it drives me to him. That's his perspective of the theology of suffering, that it's a reminder of his fallibility, of his failures, of the sin of himself or the sin of others, as we're going to see in a few minutes. But it's a recognition that regardless of the cause of the suffering, if it drives us into a deeper relationship, then suffering, even when not our fault or anyone else's fault, is still a good thing because it drives us closer and deeper to God. So with that background, let's tackle a couple of the reasons of why bad things happen to good people. Why does suffering happen? Why do evil things happen in the world? Point number one, we live in a fallen world. That should be obvious. Since Genesis chapter 2, we've had a fallen world with all kinds of sin. Uh, lots of great Bible verses on this. Romans chapter 5 that we studied a couple of months ago. When Adam sinned, uh, Genesis chapter 2, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. It was the contagion of sin. Romans chapter 8 also describes how that results in a fallen world. 
with sickness, with natural disasters, with viruses, with tropical storms headed towards the Gulf Coast this weekend, with all kinds of problems is a world aching under the pressure of sin. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And it's almost like an aching or a moaning. He describes it as groaning and labors uh, with a pain that's as severe as birth pains because of sin. It's a great perspective that we live in a fallen world and things happen to us uh, that are no one's fault. It's just the world that we live in. So one of the great little descriptions that I've come up with to describe all of my Bible in the context of this issue is comparing and contrasting the world that used to be in Eden and the world that's coming in the millennial reign of Christ and ultimately our eternity in heaven. And that description I've said before in some classes is to simply say and recognize the world that is today is not the world that was, i.e. creation in Eden. But the world that is today, fallen, hurtful, groaning in agony, is not the world that will be. In other words, the end of the book of Revelation, the millennial reign and our time with God in heaven. So that perspective of the sinful, fallen world we're in means that's not God's perfect plan. That's not God for the past. That's not God's perfect plan for the future. That is where we are until all of civilization can be either redeemed by Christ's uh, atonement or judged for the sin that happened. And we're just in that state out of which God can still be sovereign. God still is sovereign and great things can happen, but you still have to deal with the fallen world and the fallen suffering. So things like natural disasters, things like diseases, cancer and viruses and all kinds of things that hurt us and make us sick and sometimes kill us is not of God's creation. It's the result of the destruction of God's perfect creation by sin because of man's choice and because of the role of uh, Satan and the demons that we talked about last week. Point number two, other people's sin hurts us. So both of these first points, two points, are directly applicable to Paul. He's in a fallen world. He can get sick. He can be subject to prejudice because he's a Christian. He can be lied about. But in particular, other people's sin can have a negative consequence on him. For Paul, it's the sin of Nero in lying and blaming Christians. For him, it's the sin uh, of Nero uh, being a psychotic murderer and wanting to kill all the Christians to distract the news that was blaming him for bad things and for being such a bad emperor. But the other reality is that uh, Nero's illness, uh, what I believe was a true mental psychosis, uh, was the result of the fallen world that he was in. And uh, I gave a cross-reference verse we didn't do a deep dive on last week, but it's a great little verse here, that the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In other words, there's an impact among everybody around you when someone sins. So if someone's going to sin, it's going to have a negative consequence. 
uh, as a husband and a father, if I sin in a way that hurts Natalie or hurts the kids, that's going to have a ripple effect. If someone in your world, uh, your employer, your partner, your spouse, your kids have sin in their life, it's going to negatively impact you just like the wake of the boat. That is almost kind of the imagery there uh, that we get from uh, Paul writing to Timothy uh, in chapter 5 from last week's lesson. Uh, great little quote from Romans chapter 5 uh, verses 12. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. That's describing a picture kind of like the boat wake of these waves of sin going out with everybody's sin impacting everybody else. And so a lot of times things can happen that are the direct result of someone's disobedience to God's words, someone's dishonesty, someone's choice in a moral matter that has a negative impact on you because you're closely connected to them. We've got to be very, very careful. The third point, though, is the law of the harvest. And this is where we get, we've got to be a little bit careful because this idea is if we sin, then there's definitely going to be consequences of that. What we sow, we will reap. That's the biblical concept of our own sin. But we've got to be careful because if you're not, you can easily connect that Western Hinduism karma and say, well, Christians sin, and if a Christian sin, there's going to be negative consequences. So if a Christian has trouble, I just need to look for the sin in their life. That's why it's point three, because that's not true. I can be totally righteous and live in a fallen world and get sick. I can be totally righteous and have other people's sin negatively impact me, and I can be devastated, I can be sick, I can be tortured, I can be killed, and it has to do with the fallen world we live in, it has to do with the sin of other people, and it has nothing to do with the law of harvest in me. But I mention this as a third point because so many times Christians live under the delusion that the law of the harvest doesn't apply to them. The most important aspect of being able to deal with these three issues is a matter of personal honesty. And so many times we rationalize our own experience, we rationalize our action, we decide we didn't do anything wrong. If anyone else was in our position, they would do the exact same thing, and we never come to grips with our own sin. Now, we can look at history and realize Paul is not in prison in Rome awaiting a trial for the death penalty because of his own sin. There's no hint of it in Scripture. There's no hint of it in the record of the early church fathers. He was as righteous as you could be, even though a fallen, redeemed man. And so we can clearly look at him and do a diagnostic and say, well, it's a fallen world and a mentally ill emperor. And it's the sin of that emperor and lying about others and lying about himself and doing evil things for those that he was falsely charging and falsely convicting. But we as Christians can't lose sight of the reality of the law of the harvest as it applies to us. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 is where it comes from. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And I've said before so many times in class we do sinful things. We want to pray about it. We want to pray for crop failure. We want to pray that we don't reap what we sow. The scripture makes it clear it's just a matter of when and a matter of how. Other great reference, James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Great little comment on this, that the consequence is death of relationships, death of integrity, death of honor, and it can result in spiritual death or physical death. 
if taken to a certain extreme, but so many times the death of those things we treasure, death of reputation, death of honor, death of intimate relationships, can be the most immediate consequence of sins. So we've got to be honest in our evaluation of what's the reason for the circumstance I'm in, but it ends with three. It doesn't start with three on the law of the harvest. We also have to look at the, the world we live in and its fallen state and the sin of other people. So let me wrap up the last couple of minutes we got. What's our application? Uh, the application is to embrace the gospel of suffering. And what do I mean by that? It gets back to Martin Luther's idea, because if Luther's idea is a theology of the cross or a theology of my glory, I got to decide what way I'm going to worship. I got to decide what way I'm going to evaluate church. I got to decide what way I'm going to pray. I've got to decide what way I'm going to deal with my spiritual gift and why I'm using my spiritual gift. And all of those things through theology of the cross are focused on God's will, the suffering of Christ, and my willingness as a follower of him to do like him, which is deal with a world that hates my guts. Embracing the gospel of suffering says living in a fallen world, living with and interacting and working with and being married to and having children and others that are sinful means I've got to deal with the wake in my life of sin in their lives. But it also means I've got to deal with my own sin. If I do something wrong to somebody, I got to repent it to God. I got to repent it to them. I've got to deal with amends if that's appropriate. And I got to work with a plan then, whether it's with me or with other people around me, to make sure I don't do that again. That's the gospel of suffering, but it's not a me centered gospel of my health, my wealth, my glory. It's focused on Christ and that approach. Great little quote here from Ravi Zachariah, who just died. Two weeks ago, his funeral was a week ago. Great man, uh, and uh, we could say a whole bunch of stuff about him, but I just want to end on this quote from him that says, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. That's the essence of the gospel, the theology of the cross. That's the antithesis of the gospel of glory or the theology of glory that's just focused on me and my glory. And Ravi gives us a great perspective that if the whole purpose of the gospel is to make dead people live, then my role as the Christian is not to wallow in self-pity of my circumstance, whether it's economic, whether it's vocational, whether it's relational. I want to look at that problem and say, God, how can you use me through this suffering, through this fallen world we live in and an illness I've got or through the sin of somebody else and this problem I now have, how can you use me to take your message of love and forgiveness and reconciliation to a dead man or woman and through your power and your forgiveness and your glory, make them a new creation? That's the challenge on us. That's what we've got to do. And that's why this was a great study on Paul going into prison. It's the result of the fallen world he was in. It's the result of the sin of other people, including Nero, the Roman emperor. And while waiting for his final trial, he's going to write the book of 2 Timothy. That's what we're going to tackle next week. It's going to be a great study. We're going to be in it for a couple of weeks. I haven't decided yet exactly how I'm going to break it down, but it's going to be a couple of weeks. And he really lays his heart out. He really bears his soul. In 2 Timothy, 
Paul knows he's about to die. He knows either through God told him or his ability to look at his circumstances and think it's not going to end well. And he writes essentially his final communication of knowing how critical and how much he wants to say to his protege, Timothy, still back in Ephesus. And he gives that final loving, heartfelt uh, teaching on some really neat stuff that we're going to tackle in 2 Timothy. So join us again next week, and let's uh, continue our great study of Paul. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for working with me through the lesson. Thanks for continuing to encourage me uh, to pray for me and Natalie and our kids. Everything's going well on our end. Uh, we look forward to staying in touch with everybody, and let's bow in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to study this word, to get a reminder of the world that we live in and the reality of dealing with sinful people and how that happens. We thank you so much for the historical perspective you've given us, not only on history, but our own lives. And we can see you working despite the fallen world we live in. You still having your word, you still having your will, you still show your love and show your power through people just like us. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your promise of eternal life. We thank you for working through us on a daily basis, despite the suffering and the trouble that we go through. And we just say, thank you, God. We don't deserve one minute of it, but we love you for it. We praise your name for it. And we just ask you to use us as an instrument to the dark world that so deeply needs your light and your love. We ask all these things through your name and through your power in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much. I look forward to continuing to talk to you next week. Y'all have a great week. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.